Good morning again, Hill family. If your Bibles, please open it to the Gospel of Isaiah. The Gospel of Isaiah. You can turn to uh, chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. Uh, maybe a few announcements just to push on a little double click might say uh, members yes we have a you know this we have a uh, we always do a budget meeting this time of year right after service we'll do that but then you also know we've made some changes we've been working through those for the last eight months through the bylaws we'll approve those we're going to approve some officers today so please stay after it it will be a 20 minute meeting but you're definitely needed please to be here today after after service and then secondly if you are um Involved in the Angel Tree uh, ministry, you bought some gifts, or today's the day to turn those in. So make sure you get those, please, turned in today. All right, gift cards, gifts, all those, please, turned in today. All right, Isaiah chapter nine. Darkness can, at times, I think, I know, um, be a bit disorienting. Uh, not sure if you've ever experienced this, uh, but it's a real thing. Uh, I'm not talking about like when you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you kind of stumble to find the door. No, I'm, I'm talking about a, a darkness which kind of overwhelms you, um, comes over you, even confuses you. The first time I experienced this was um, during the interview process when I was trying to become a, a fireman, which is not, the interview process wasn't an easy thing in that sense. Um, but the difficulty was not really the physical demand of it. I had been told there was some physical demands of it. I was somewhat young and in shape, so it really wasn't that intense in that sense. There was a mental and emotional factor to it which I wasn't really prepared for. Um, And one of those things happened on one evening when we showed up, and they brought us into this large kind of warehouse. Um, And there was this, what it seemed like to me, a large toddler kind of obstacle. You know the little round tubes that toddlers crawl through? looked like a tunnel system made for toddlers is what I thought. It seemed too much to me. And though we had to crawl through it, we had to do the entire training with like a 50-pound flak vest on. Um, looking at it from the outside, it seemed pretty straightforward. Um, seemed like a cakewalk. The instructor explained to us that inside we'll encounter some obstacles. We might have to crawl over, go around, kind of go underneath. But as he made it seem clear it's not that difficult in terms of the physical maneuvering within the tunnel but then he said the most important thing is for you to listen to my voice as i'm going to move you through the tunnel so it seemed easy enough so i volunteered first instructor held kind of the door it was kind of a flap door on the one end he held it up and um i kind of got on my hands and knees to crawl in i remember seeing the first obstacle which only really confirmed my thoughts that this is going to be rather easy But once I got inside and he closed the little hatch or the little compartment that put me in there, I realized real quickly this might be harder than I thought. And when he closed that hatch for the first time, I think that I'd ever really experienced every bit of light was extinguished from from my eyes. And this, although it didn't really alarm me at first because I really had the image of what that first obstacle looked like, so I confidently moved forward. But as soon as I stumbled past the first one, honestly, I was done. I spent the next four to five minutes. He said we had five minutes time limit uh, to make our way through it. And I remember at one point thinking, literally, am I on my knees or am I on my back? Um, I was completely disoriented by the darkness. The humbling part of the, I mean, the most humbling part of the whole experience is when he said, your time is up. And he pulled the hatch and light kind of rushed in and you realize, man, it took me that long to get over that little thing there. But then I stood, I came to the outside and stood up and I was literally like 10 yards past where I'd started. At some point I had went a long way, turned around and come back and made my way all the way back to the start. It was really humbling in that process. Now the, uh, maybe you haven't experienced the obstacle crawl through the dark, but I would imagine you've probably experienced your own sense of disorienting darkness on some level. Maybe you were outside or doing something around the house and you've experienced that level of darkness that you're just confused by what's in front of you. In the, the, this Advent season, we're considering, I saw some of your faces who weren't here last week when I said, we're considering the gospel of Jesus Christ from the gospel of Isaiah, as I'm, as I'm referring to it. And the prophet, and the reason we're saying that is the prophet Isaiah has news to tell us. 
He has a gospel message to tell us. And it is one of light. God is taking His people from perfection through brokenness to restoration by means of His Son, our King, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus. It's the message of Isaiah. And this message shines forth during a a time of deep and disorienting darkness for the people of God. Our text this morning is going to declare the people who walked in darkness have seen a light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And yet the prophet's message concerning this hope of light shining forth from darkness centers on a rather peculiar birth announcement. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And yet this statement, which in its day seemed rather irrelevant on first notice, proves to be the centerpiece of human history proves to be the great hope of Christmas itself. For through this child born, through this son given, the light shines into darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, as John tells us. Isaiah 9 teaches us this morning that really Christmas concerns the eternal son born the majestic king to establish his kingdom for those who belong to him. This birth concerns the eternal Son. Not a Son who was created, a Son who was eternal. And He was born the majestic King. And He was so to establish His kingdom for His people. Isaiah 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In anguish, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation... You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide their spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his burden, the rod of his oppressor, have been, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Lord, we pause after the reading of your word. With that last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it, will accomplish it, will bring it about. What is that phrase we need to hear more than anything other, I think, this holiday season? Everything we need, everything we long for, everything we hope for, depends not on us. It depends upon the zeal of the Lord of hosts. God, let us rest in that reality this morning. As we look to your text, we too from a land of darkness, a great light is shown in the face of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us walk in that truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now our text is one of celebration this morning. And the celebration, as you heard me say, centers on the birth, on a birth announcement in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. But I want you to notice this morning how our text calls us individually from this text to do absolutely, really nothing particular. Isaiah 9 serves as an announcement concerning who God is and what He has done. And we are simply to gaze upon it, to see it, 
and to be in awe of it. The prophet has good news to deliver. And receive rightly, it's good news that should inspire our wonder, that should provoke our awe, and really help us worship rightly this holiday season. But this good news announced some 2,700 years ago comes against the backdrop of some very bad news. Disorienting darkness covered the land. Two main headings this morning. We're going to look at the, the news of the king and the nature of the king. That's how we're going to look at it this morning. And we begin verse with the, the news of the king in the first five verses. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, my ESV, ESV says. The NIV reads, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. So we hear in verse 1 a, a glimmer of hope, but one that peers from behind a cloud of darkness. This is 8th century B.C. I, I presented the history and all that was going on last week in the time period of Isaiah. I won't do that again this morning, but this is 8th century B.C. It's about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This is about nearly 200 years since this schism within the nation of Israel resulting in this division in the northern kingdom known as Israel or Ephraim and the southern kingdom of Judah where the prophet Isaiah is called to minister the word of the Lord. The southern kingdom Judah is where the emphasis of this book is, is at. Judah is a fairly prosperous nation. It's a compromised nation though. Following the death of King Uzziah in chapter 6, the corrupt and wicked King Ahaz, as we were introduced last week, he has taken his seat upon the throne of Judah, the throne of David. 2 Kings 16 outlines that history and transition if you want to read that further in your spare time. Ahaz's concern in Isaiah is not faithfulness to God, but political and economic power, which he sought to maintain through devious scheming at every turn. Uh, Ahaz led the nation into idolatrous worship, even offering his own son as a sacrifice to the pagan gods, all in an attempt to align himself with the powers that be. Refusing to trust the Lord, Ahaz sought security for himself and for the nation at the feet of their enemies, the Assyrians, as we saw last week. And Judah, led by King Ahaz, proves to be no different than the northern kingdom Israel. Both of them are consumed with corruption, with wickedness, with rebellion, resulting in disorienting season of darkness to go over the land. Look back at chapter 8, verse 11. I want to give a little context here before we move forward. Chapter 8, verse 11 says, For the Lord spoke to, to me, the me being Isaiah, with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. So the, the people's manner of life, their way of life, their conduct is corrupt and it's wicked to the point God says, avoid, don't be like them. You see them? There's an illustration for you. Don't do that. Don't live like that. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. So improper fear had led the people to believe all sorts of things. But for Isaiah and the faithful remnant of the people, verse 13 says, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. For He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on Him. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and they shall be taken. He says, Your fear of the Lord is to put all other fears in their place, is what Isaiah is told. He says here, literally, the text says that everyone will meet the Lord. It says God is unavoidable. Either you trust in Him as your sanctuary, or you will stumble over Him in unbelief, and then be crushed by that stone. The people are fearing everything but the Lord at this moment. And as a result, they're trusting in and looking for guidance from everywhere but God's Word. Look at verse 16. The prophet speaks in the first person here. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells 
on Mount Zion. Isaiah is saying that he and this faithful remnant, which becomes a theme throughout Isaiah, will look to God's word. They will trust in his testimonies and they will wait on him. But not so for the people, verse 19. And when they say, the people, there's us and there's a they. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony, he says. That's who we should require. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Literally, they have no light in them. Refusing to trust in the Lord does not mean trusting in nothing. It means refusing to trust in the Lord, refusing to believe in the Lord, means that you go on trusting and believing just about anything. When you build your life on something other than the Word, what follows is spelled out in verse 21. Look at it. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. When they're hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. Though they reject God and His Word, in the end, the people end up blaming God, refusing to take responsibility for their action. Distress and hunger and division follows. And then the conclusion in verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the state of 8th century Judah here. But oh how it sounds like a contemporary one, right? 8th century Judah is not much different than 21st century America. We live in a culture of utter idolatry which prizes, prioritizes, and promotes the self at every turn. We live in a culture which looks to every source available for wisdom and guidance except the Word of the Lord. Because of this, we live in a hungry culture, a starving culture, starving for purpose and for meaning, enraged concerning the affairs of man. There's no dawn in our land. We live in a land of disorienting darkness on so many levels. Wickedness is not only approved, it's celebrated. It's championed. And it's even assigned moral status by our culture. But that's the easy thing to see. The darkness out there is easy to identify. But it's the darkness inside of us which is most the threat to us. As believers, we know that the darkness of this world is merely a reflection of the shadow of our broken selves. Darkness lurks in all of us. We're sinners. Hopelessly disoriented in our sin if not for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great hope of Christmas is that the weary world rejoices. And that great confession, or that great, that great announcement, or that great testimony of Christmas must begin as a confession that bursts forth first from our soul. The weary world rejoices is not something outside of us. It's us. Remember the prophet's message here is one of news, I said. Five times the word good news shows up. But it's actually just the word news if you look at it. The context has to tell you if it's good news or bad news. In chapter 8, it's bad news. But chapter 9 is good news. But there is no good news apart from bad news. There is no light that shines but from darkness. And in in this context, Isaiah proclaims the news of the coming king in chapter 9. So it begins... Chapter 9 begins really as the opening pages of our Bible does. Let there be light. And this light is to burst forth from an unusual place. Look at it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
Now, we, we might expect an announcement like this, especially in a moment that unto us a, a child is born, unto us a, a son is given. We, might, we would expect that announcement to come from Jerusalem. The center of operations, the headquarters. But here we find it, that it's Galilee of the nations is where this light is going to burst forth. I don't need to tell you this, but you know Galilee was looked down upon with great condescension. We see that in the Bible, right? We're in the book of Acts. Remember Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when uh, upon hearing those who were full of the Spirit speaking in different languages, they said, are not these Galileans? I mean, these, these people don't learn multiple languages. They barely get their own language down. Galilee was not considered a cultured and a cultured place in a highly esteemed part of town. Can anything good come from Nazareth? A town in Galilee. That was the refrain. However, Galilee was also strategic, especially in terms of invasion. War upon Israel typically came from the north, from through Galilee, which meant that the people of Galilee knew despair. They knew suffering. They knew the worst of circumstances. Their area was merely a pinball land that nations passed through to bring war. And Isaiah's message is that God would send His light, His Messiah, to shine first from here in the most unexpected and overlooked place. Galilee of the nations. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4 cites this very text as an announcement as the birth of place of Jesus' ministry would begin. This tells me, brothers and sisters, that the benefits of Jesus, that the beauty and the, the magnitude of His light can be easily missed. It was not expected that God would do anything, let alone send the Messiah from Galilee. See, there's a peculiar manner to God's kingdom which we can miss if we're not paying attention spiritually. If we walk through this life on spiritual cruise control, we will miss the things of God. Operating by the standards of the day, nobody would have believed the Messiah would have come from Galilee. Nobody would have believed the Messiah would be born as a baby. And no one especially would believe that the Messiah of Israel would come and be slain upon a criminal's cross. But He was. He did. And it says here that this will result in His coming, this light will result in three things, joy, freedom, and peace, verses 3-5. to You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The joy is going to come back to the people of God because of this light. Verse 4, freedom will come. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 5, in verse 5, we see peace here. Every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled with blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. War will be over. Cease. There's joy, there's freedom, there's peace here. No doubt this speaks to the future final kingdom which will find the full fulfillment of joy, the full fulfillment of freedom, the full fulfillment of peace, no doubt. But it's not just then. It's not just the future. It's now in the Lord Jesus. And this also tells me land of Galilee, that we, you, I, are inundated with false counterfeit joys, false counterfeit freedoms, false counterfeit pieces, which will cause you to miss the true joy, the true freedom, the true peace that only the Lord Jesus offers. We must be careful. There is a peculiar reality to the way God operates. And if we're just walking in this world on cruise control, we'll miss the things of God. But how do we know this is true? Upon what ground can this be trusted? Well, it's not just the news. It's the nature of the one who's coming. That's how we can know the truth of it. 
And the rest of verses 6 to 7, which we really focus in on Christmas, speaks to the nature of this one who's coming. This isn't as anyone coming. Verse 6 is our famous verse found on Christmas cards and ornaments this time of year. But notice how this famous verse is it's marked by a contrast. We might even say a paradox of sorts. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. There's radical humility wrapped here in majestic deity. Child occurs here. I want to see first, uh, we think, speak about nature, first the divine humility of this one. So child here occurs in the first kind of place of emphasis in the text. Unto us or for us literally could mean for our good. For our good, a child is born. What could be more humble than a, a baby? So in the midst of this tumultuous time, with wars and rumors of wars on the horizon, the announcement is that a child is going to be born. However, this promise of the birth of a child is actually the foundational promise to which the story of the Bible is built upon. After the fall in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought sin and death into the world, God made a promise. And this promise, just like we see here in Isaiah, was given within the context of judgment. Speaking forth judgment upon Satan himself, God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, speaking to Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Old Testament, the entire Bible, and all human history is the outworking of this promise. It's the promise that God is going to fix the problem which began in the garden. That problem that's on display in 8th century Judah. That problem that's so evident in our broken world today through the birth of a male child. That's the promise of the Bible. And yes, Satan will injure this child. Bruises he, as we see on the cross. But this child, by bruising his heel, will deliver that death blow to Satan, the head wound. So Isaiah shows up here with a word from the Lord announcing the birth of a humble, simple child which ripples across the page of human history. And yet, as humble as the birth of this child may seem, it's coupled with, even contrasted by, divinity. To us a son is given. The specificity of language here is shocking. The text does not say, for to us a child is born, to us a son is born. For in the Lord Jesus, a child was born. But in the Lord Jesus, no son was born. As the New Testament makes clear, we know this son is the Lord Jesus, the eternal son. Jesus, who forever existed with the Father, that son entered our world through the birth of a child. He took upon humanity and radical humility. Yet this Son, Jesus, was also given to us as a gift from heaven. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he, He gave of His own Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. So at Christmas we celebrate the birth of a child, yes. And we celebrate, though, at Christmas, the giving of a son. The promise to the answer of sin in the garden. The promise to the answer for sin and darkness in Israel. And brothers and sisters, the promise for the answer for the sin in your own soul is the coming of King Jesus and humble deity. The humility and obscurity of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem of Galilee points to the humility and the obscurity of his death upon a criminal cross for sin. The king was humble enough to be born into this world, taking upon our humanity and dying for our sin. Yet he was God enough to pay the penalty for our sin and rise from the grave conquering our great enemy of sin and death. So divine humility is the first aspect we see here of this king's nature. But next then, we get a fourfold kind of stacking of his names which further illustrates 
his nature. Now, what's happening here? Is this like similar to a, a boxer's introduction? See who, which one of you guys know good movies here. Fill in the blank. Extra credit for whoever fill in the blank here. The Dancing Destroyer. The King of Sting. The Count of Monte Cristo. The Prince of Punch. The Master of Disaster. The One and Only. Somebody, don't let me down. Who? No, we, we got to, you know. Huh? No, not Rocky. No, no, that's too good. It can't be. It's not a real person. <laughs> there it is, Apollo Creed. The, see, look at everybody. Oh, the Apollo Creed. Is that what's happening here? This is no ringside announcer, brothers and sisters. This is a divine proclamation from the throne of heaven. This is a birth announcement defining the name of this child, setting him apart from all others. This verse alone cannot be answered, cannot be fulfilled by anyone but the Lord Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, we find more than 250 names and titles of God. But here, Isaiah weaves together four which appear nowhere else in the Bible to tell us about this child, our coming King. Together, these encapsulate we might say the, a full picture of the person and work of Jesus. And the first one is that he's a wonderful counselor. This child is one who gives divine counsel and unfailing wisdom. This word wonderful is never used in Scripture except of God. Of, what, of who he is and what he has done. This is the embodiment of, uh, of, of divine, really we might say miraculous counsel. Not unlike Isaiah's day, we live in a world of counselors. There's all sorts of competing wisdom at every turn beckoning our ear. Our world is full of people, things, ideas, which promise to fix our problems, to help us understand the meaning of life. There's no shortage of counselors today to try to tell you who you are and how you should live. What we see here is that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He's the center of knowledge and wisdom from above. Colossians 2, 3 says, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the true counselor because He is the embodiment of knowledge and wisdom from God. Jesus always makes the right decision. Always. What Jesus says is always right and true. He needs no advisors. Who can give counsel to the Lord, Paul says. We must build our lives on Him. We build our lives on His Word. Because He's the wonderful counselor. But He's also the mighty God. This child, this son, is described as El Gabor. A hero God, the warrior God. A familiar term in the Old Testament. As we've already seen, it's repeated again. This child is divine. There's no other way to look at this text. Mighty God depicts warfare and battle imagery. This child, a child, is said to be a warrior who fights mightily for his people. Where do we see that? Calvary would be the battleground of this warrior child, son. Sin, death, Satan is our great foe. And this child born in a manger will grow up to become our victor by His death and on the cross for our sins. The cradle and empty tomb stand as victory signs that Jesus is our mighty God. I touched on this last week, but maybe you're growing weary, losing heart this Christmas season. It could be maybe seemingly unsurmountable difficulties before you. Look to Jesus. No one is like our God. He's great. He's mighty in power. Keep our eyes from our circumstances. Focus on our mighty God who stands and fights our battles for us. 
He's everlasting Father. Don't let this trip you up. Jesus is the eternal Son. He's not the Father. There's no confusion here in this text. This title is descriptive of who Jesus is to us, to those who are His. In other words, He acts towards us like a father. This child is fatherly in his love and his care, his goodness and his compassion. This is who he is to his people. He acts on our behalf as a good and perfect father. Jesus is always here for us. Jesus is never too busy. Jesus is never too, he's never preoccupied. He's never disinterested in the affairs of our lives. He's here for us. He's a good father. There's never a moment he doesn't claim us. Never a moment he doesn't look and say, that's my child. If you know Jesus, he's our great, perfect protector. He's our provider. He acts towards us as an everlasting father. And then he's the prince of peace. What a phenomenal statement. I know for you, maybe, I don't know for me, I, we just take statements like this at Christmas and we just say them and, Sing them, but a prince of peace. What a beautiful statement. He's a supreme giver of peace. Luke chapter 2, verse 14, you read how the angels sang to the shepherds of one who was coming to bring peace on earth. And here in Isaiah, here he is. Here's this one, the prince of peace. The Bible makes clear that God is our source of peace. God is the maker of peace. God is the one who provides peace and peace alone. There's no true and lasting peace outside of God. God created the world in peace and harmony. Something went wrong. Adam and Eve sinned. Plunged all of creation into the world cursed by sin. We know that to be the case because we sin. In our sin, disobedience and rebellion left us alienated and separated from God without hope, without peace in the world, Paul tells us. But the Prince of Peace has come to reconcile us back to God through the cross. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you know the rest of it, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There He is, the Prince of Peace. So Jesus, our coming King, He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the embodiment of peace. He provides peace between us and God and between each other. There is a day marked in the future where He will extend the peace we know in our hearts to every far reach, as far as it can go. Verse 7 says, This peace, there there will be no end. And you think about a verse like this, you think about response, application, this packing of these divine names and the nature. The only proper response is one of worship. Literally, Isaiah is setting up this glorious celebration, which is a call to worship. Literally a call like chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he fell before his face before the Lord. Isaiah is able to stand as a prophet. And, 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 you know, I want you guys to think. We can think about the prophetic ministry as some glorious ministry in terms of the opinions of man or the applause of man. Isaiah had this huge backing and was everywhere he went was saying, oh, Isaiah, we love you. No, just the opposite. Isaiah had a a ministry of proclaiming the word of the Lord to a rebellious people who would reject him at every turn. How could Isaiah walk and remain faithful in that? Chapter 6, I think, is it. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah had a, a vision of the Lord that was big enough to motivate his obedience, to fill his faith, that he could go through anything. Isaiah is presenting something to us in this child. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We worship him. 
Let us not run ahead in planning this season. Shopping, cooking, Christmas cards. Miss the opportunity to expand our wonder. As one author says, as the wonderful counselor, he has the surest strategies. Let us follow him. As the mighty God, he he defeats our enemies. Let's trust him. As the everlasting father, he takes full responsibility for us. Let's rest in him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let us worship him. In light of who this king is, verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. The kingdom, as we see, of grace and peace, it doesn't have a shelf life, brothers and sisters. It will forever grow, forever succeed, forever expand. When all partisan politics collapse as failures as they absolutely will, His kingdom will stand forever, enlarging, extending, and intensifying. There will never be a time when we will say, that's the limit, that's it. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. You know what's going to instantly cure our, I want to use the word addiction, I'm going to use the word addiction, our connection to the screens of our phone, when the kingdom of Christ comes about full. We'll find no one with our heads down staring at a screen. We'll be captivated by the wonder of this Lord Jesus. Let us begin now. There's no term limit on this king. There's no golden age of his kingdom that will rise and then slow down. For us who belong to Christ, we will bask in the glory of his kingdom forever. And notice this does not come as a campaign promise like we're going to hear coming up again campaign promise which produces a lot of cheers a lot of promises (laughs) but when they get in office the farthest thing from what we know anything ever happens look at verse 7 the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this now zeal is a strong word it can be translated like jealous or jealousy it speaks to an excessive fervor a consuming, passionate commitment to something. And this is described not as just the zeal, but the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The, the Lord of hosts is a phrase used over 200 times in the Old Testament to depict the unrivaled power and authority of God. The entire universe, all the celestial beings, beckon His call. He's the Lord of hosts. So what is it that secures the future of this world? What is it that secures the future of our lives? What is it that secures the the hope that the darkness of this world and the darkness of our souls will not get the last word? It's not our efforts. It's not our zeal. It's not your faith. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The wonderful counselor's zeal. The mighty God's zeal. The everlasting Father's zeal. The Prince of Peace's zeal. That's whose zeal will accomplish this. The security of what Jesus offers us. The security of His kingdom. Is unshakable. Unrivaled power matched by an uncompromising resolve is what defines our hope. Unrivaled power, he's the Lord of hosts. Uncompromising resolve, his zeal, that's what defines our hope. All we have to do is look to the cross to see that. On the cross, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, burst forth. Jesus would passionately give His life to display the glory of His Father. He would passionately, with fervor, 
hang upon the cross and be crucified for the sins of mankind to give glory and honor to His Father. It's that zeal which is our hope. Wisdom. Wonderful counselor. Power. Everlasting Father. Or fatherly care. And the perfect peace of Jesus all made manifested on the cross. So guess what I'm saying to you is what, what you need more than anything else this holiday season. What I need, what we all need, has already been accomplished. You know, it's interesting in this text. There is a mixture of both past tense and future tense language. If you go back and look at verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, there's past tense language there. The prophet's speaking of something so sure. They're speaking about something in the future as if it's already happened. And how is it going to happen? How is it so sure that it's already going to happen? Because of the one who's coming. This isn't like the son's going to come. This child's going to be born and we'll see how it works out. Well, this is the plan from the foundation of the world. The zeal of the Lord would carry him to the cross. He would lay down his life for the sins of mankind. He would usher us into his eternal kingdom. That's the future event from the time of Isaiah. But it's so sure it's a past tense event. The prophet speaks to it with that much certainty. So, brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a manner in which that same security, that same confidence, that same zeal should be in our soul. It's a certain thing if you place faith in Jesus that He will bring you into His eternal kingdom. It's a certain thing if you place faith in Jesus that He will bring you to your final glorification. Whatever is in your soul right now, whatever you're struggling with, place it alongside the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That's our hope. And we have the opportunity to celebrate that hope through the Lord's Supper. And if you are a a believer this morning, we invite you to come to the table. Because you're saying, by your salvation in Christ, by your faith and confession in Him, that you share in that hope. That through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, is your eternal life. If you're not a believer this morning, please stay seated. Don't come to the table. But that's not out of an act of we don't love you. It's out of an act of love for you. We don't want you to come to the table. We want you to come to Jesus. We want you to see the darkness that characterizes our soul as well. But a darkness for the believer that the light of Christ is shining over and that darkness cannot overcome it. Confess your sin this morning to this God, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Confess your sin to Him. Receive His salvation that He accomplished for you if you believe in Him by His zeal. Enter His kingdom. For us as believers, we're going to come forward in just a moment. We're going to come through the middle, take the elements, go back to your seat. And we're going to sing a song this morning, Christ our hope in life and death. We're going to reflect as you hold the cup, as you hold the wafer. We're going to reflect upon this hope. What does this represent? This represents that my hope is not in me. My hope is not in my efforts, my church attendance, my zeal. My hope is in the zeal of the Lord. His life, His death for sin. Here's the lyrics of the first couple lines. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our soul to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? What will keep us to the end? 
the love of Christ in which we stand. The chorus says, Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. That's our confession. As we hold the cup, as we hold the wafer, let that be your confession. So come forward, you'll receive them, come back to your seats. Reflect with them in your hand. We'll sing with them in your hand. I'll come back forward and lead us in partaking of those together. Let's pray. Father, it is with, with joy we, we turn now to the, to the supper. We thank you for... Well, I thank you for the church. Thank you for the, the great gift that you give us in the church. Today we get to see the full beauty of it really on display through the, the gospel that was shared. We saw a brother come to faith in Christ. We sing together. We pray together. We preach the word. We baptize a brother. Now we partake of the Lord's Supper. But we saw this brother who was out amongst the world be brought into the, to the family through baptism. The many was made one. But Lord, we also see now this unifying reality of the table. That we as the body of Christ, the many members, now partake in this one bread, one cup. As an expression of our one faith, our one Lord, our one baptism in the Lord Jesus. God, might you inspire our hearts this morning, this season, to, to wonder of you, to awe of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I do pray that you would give us confidence as we hold the cup, as we hold the wafer. Not confidence in ourselves, Lord, but confidence in you. Our salvation, our eternal life is not built on shaky ground. It's based upon the, the assurity of your power and your great zeal to finish it as you did. That you will bring us into your eternal kingdom. So let us confess our sin today. Let's lay ourselves before you. Listen to where you're speaking to us. But as believers, let us quickly receive the cleansing work of the gospel and to walk in the newness of life. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.